Hey, everybody. It's Manny Faces, the audio editor and sound design maestro of Unfucking the Republic. Just a quick note before we start this episode of Show Notes. You'll recognize very quickly because of the lack of any commentary about it. This was recorded before the tragic events in Uvalde, Texas. Our hearts are broken, and I'm sure we'll address it in upcoming episodes. Just wanted to give you the heads up. Thanks. Hey there, unfuckers. We have a rousing day ahead of us of show notes or night whenever you're listening to this, of course. There was some good news to share, by the way, after our last episode dropped. We were watching the returns come in and Manny, 99, and I all slacking each other with great excitement as Andrea Salinas out in Oregon wound up just thumping the field and beating back all that crypto money that I bet isn't worth half as much as it was when that gentleman first invested his money. Too bad, so sad. Turns out that that particular crypto fucker had invested in a number of races across the country, but the one that we were focused on was in Oregon with the brand new district. I think it was number six. And Carrick Flynn, who had really no appreciable skill set to be in that job and couldn't really talk his way out of any sort of policy bag whatsoever. And the odds on favorite, at least in the progressive party, Andrea Salinas being overwhelmed with campaign cash from Carrick Flynn's side, ultimately emerging to victory. So good on you, Oregon. We appreciate that. And in terms of good on you, good on you down under is Anthony Albanese walked away with the election and the referendum down in Australia. So congratulations to all of our progressive down under fuckers. For at least a momentary writing of the ship, we'll see what happens and we'll see, obviously, how all of the dark money players coalesce to try and bring down the agenda. But from what I read as well, and down under fuckers, please, please do weigh in with your response to this assumption that I'm making based on just looking at a cursory review of the news, is that the most impressive part was that Albanese is going to have to work really hard from a coalition perspective to build numbers with the Green Party, which had a really good showing down under. So let me know your thoughts on that. Let me know your thoughts on the surging Green Party and what policy measures might have to come about as a result of the election. And before we get into show notes, I just, I dash this this quick note because 99 compiles these incredibly detailed notes from all over the place. So whether it's social media or the direct feedback or the emails that we get, it's quite a lot to go through, which is why, obviously, we split show notes out from the regular show. And I got to the, I had this sense that we didn't get as much feedback this week. And then I looked at the document that 99 put together, and I was just overwhelmed. Yes, by the volume of responses that we get to every one of the episodes, but more by the quality, more by the erudition that's in every one of these. There's just, there's no trolling, there's no bullshit, there's no you know, half-hearted sentiments being thrown our way. It's just people really grappling with issues, not everybody coming from the same perspective. Many people still challenging us, which is what we want, because we want our own assumptions challenged as well. But just just really smart feedback. So once again, I have to thank all of the unfuckers out there for being 
so engaged and such an integral part of the progressive community and creating a community for yourselves. It's it's just it's magical to watch. So with that, let's get into it. And we will start with emails where Alex P said, quote, genuine question as far as your solutions go. Why do we care what the free market shills think? They've proven time and time again that they're unwilling to help in any capacity. So if we're going to ever achieve anything, we're going to have to do it ourselves. Go all in, cancel all debt and make college free. End quote from Alex. So this is a really great question because it strikes very much at the heart of what we were putting together with the student debt episode. And that is that we have a two-tiered system that is very much out of whack here. We've got the public institutions. And remember, we're just talking about undergraduate right now. We've got public institutions and we've got private institutions. And we do still live in a market system. So we cannot make all college free. And I want to make sure that we really put that out there that we're not talking about any of the private institutions, you know, the, the Harvards and all the way on down, right? We're talking about public institutions. So state colleges and especially community colleges, those should absolutely be free. I would be okay with canceling all student debt. I truly would. I guess my, not my argument, but what I got from researching the topic from where I believe the Biden administration will go and in looking at all of the political circumstances that surround student debt, it's hard to imagine a scenario where Biden just simply cancels all student debt. I don't think that he has the the political capital or willingness to do that. If he did it, I can see it easily winding up in court. Don't really trust that we have enough federal judges that would see it as a privilege of the executive office to be able to do that. And it would wind up, you know, just being wrangled in in court forever and ever. And I don't know how I don't know how that turns out. Cancel all student debt as with a stroke of a pen and winds up in court. What happens to all the interest on the fees if it's struck down eventually? What have you? But what makes abundant sense is some cancellation and a complete refinancing. I don't understand why. Let's say you take out a federal student loan. It's a direct loan, or even the parent loan, the parent plus loan that you have to pay six and change percent. And with origination fees, it gets to be above 7% on your debt. At a time when banks can still borrow and have borrowed, by the way, for the last 20 years at close to zero. Why would we give banks, as an example, such an advantage over people, especially people that we are purportedly trying to invest in? That's the easiest part of this equation for me. So we do still live in a market system, and that's why we differentiate between the public and private institutions. And I think our goal should be to take some of the advantage away from the private institutions by one, making them have skin in the game through the insured risk pool. So if you take kids with loans, and then you have to pony up and be part of the equation. And two, pouring resources into quality public education from community college to state college, because you have to make those institutions as reputable and as progressive and as competitive as you possibly can against the private institutions that have, at this point, many of them, like an endless well of endowment money to be able to pour into their colleges so that they can you know, continue to move away from the pack from a competitive standpoint. So yeah, closing the gap on public education financing is super important. The only way to do that is to bring these organizations to heel by making them share in the risk if anybody defaults on their loans. But why would you even create a system that encourages 
loan defaults by having such punitive interest measures. If you look at the number of people that default on their loans within year one, it's a staggering percentage and it gets worse when you talk about people of color. So why even have a system like that? It doesn't make any sense. That's like the straightforward, sensible part of this thing that you can see being fought for, even in the most you know ridiculous Congress that one can imagine. Anyway, that's how I feel about that. And uh, Bobby McDee wrote in and said, education should be free, period. There should be no barriers to anyone who wants to better themselves. And here's the key part of what he wrote. We do it easily enough in Europe. It's just assumed. It's guaranteed. Why wouldn't we want that? And why wouldn't we be able to figure that out? Once again, going back to this concept that we have 5% of the population and 30% of the wealth. This is very much within our wheelhouse to be able to produce this type of result. And if you eliminate such enormous percentage of defaults on this public debt, then you kind of come into a system where even the free market people can say, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. So just get her done. Anyway, there's some, We you know, remember we had a topical cream in the middle where we talked about Deb Holland's report from the Department of the Interior that they have finally come forward with figures, I guess you could say, attached to 19 of the boarding schools that were able to verify the number of children that had died while attending school. And that was only 19. There were over 500 and it was over and it was just 19 schools. So that was the thrust of that topical cream episode that we did. And Gene said, I'm actually listening to your latest episode about the Native American kids in boarding school. And it got me thinking, would anybody actually be able to tell the difference between a Native American adult and a white adult today? So Gene, in the spirit of meeting you where you are, this is a very, very common trope, particularly from the right about the status of Native people in the country today. So I'm going to take Canada, I'm going to take Australia and, and the other areas where we've tackled indigenous issues out of the mix for a second and just talk about Native Americans specifically. I can remember, and we've talked about this before, Trump as citizen Trump testifying in front of Congress about his holdings in New Jersey and how unfair it was that Natives were given some sort of leg up in the gaming business by getting licenses and said something like, you can't even tell that these people are, are native anymore. So a couple, <laughs> a couple of things there. The reason this is such a touchy subject is because there has been a lot of mixing over the years. For example, if you look at the tribes that are along the Eastern seaboard, Many of them are darker in complexion. And that's what we're talking about here is what they look like, right? So not taking away heritage, taking away their cultural situation where, you know, how they might have grown up or the language they might have had or lost or any of the traditions in the home. Maybe they grew up on a reservation. Maybe they had family from a reservation. But whatever it is, part of their cultural identity, history, ethnicity, what have you, is considered to be Native American. If you go along the eastern seaboard in the United States, you'll see that many of them are darker in complexion than what we classically associate with Native people. And that is because many of the reservations were stops on the Underground Railroad, and it's where slaves took harbor. So there's that. And then the other part of it is that many Natives were actually enslaved peoples themselves and wound up having their bloodlines mixed. 
Many of them assimilated, forcibly so, as we covered in our residential schools episode, into the predominantly white Christian culture and were taken advantage of or just fully assimilated. And I'm not characterizing the the upside or the downside of assimilation. I'm just stating a fact that cultural appropriation happened sexually as well. And whether it was through sexual assault or through psychological assimilation, a lot of Native people wound up, you know, being blended into the culture. But that doesn't mean that their heritage and their history and their identity and their culture disappeared along with that, as hard as the white Christian nationalists would try to have done that over the years. So just word of caution, when you're talking about appearance when it comes to Native people or any ethnicity, how somebody presents in the world doesn't necessarily speak to who they are, what their heritage is, or what their history is. And there you go. Now we have some general feedback. 99, you want to take this from Tim? So Tim is going back a couple weeks to the Convention of States episode. And Tim said, my understanding is that the only way this would work is if the convention sticks to a single issue. What I seem to take away from your episode is that there's no guarantee that this would be the case. Am I correct? And then Tim also posits, maybe we just blow the whole damn thing up because we had a good run. Yeah, so I think that your your final sentiment there might be a good one. You're trying to fix any sort of hmm, structural issues or legislation through a convention of states. We warned about the difficulty of doing that and also the challenges that that presents from a, a structural perspective, but the dangers inherent in actually calling a convention because you could have a runaway convention. You could have these things pop up that were unintended consequences. So on this, the Constitution is not clear. And that's why the Convention of States Action Group is trying to actually codify what it might look like. That's why they held a mock convention. There were ideas within that that they were bringing to the table, for example, the balanced budget amendment. But there was no guarantee that once a convention was called that other resolutions couldn't then be brought to the table. So even if a convention was called, again, theoretically, if a convention was called and all of the states were brought to a central convention state where, let's say, the balanced budget amendment was being voted upon and being discussed and being argued, there's nothing that says that another issue cannot then be introduced. And that's the danger. And as we'll talk about in a couple of other comments, the left, for example, has been positing what a convention of states action might look like on not a balanced budget amendment, but trying to institute campaign finance reform. That singular issue could wind up in a convention of states and then other issues could be appended to it. So the guise under which a convention would be called up until this point, it's been assumed that it would be about a singular issue, but it doesn't have to be. So that's the answer to that. And Hal said... I have to thank you for turning me on to Best of the Left, Pitchfork Economics, and Swage, all of which have become a regular part of the rotation. Now, he goes on to say, just building on the Convention of States idea, unftr.com slash COS map. That's the map that we put together as a companion piece to the episode that we did on Convention of States, kind of listing which states are already in the hopper to call a convention, which ones would absolutely not call a convention in theory based on the balanced budget amendment, and which ones over time could theoretically be wooed over to the right and become those red states that call for a convention. So that map lists Maryland, this is back to his comment now, as having an inactive COS campaign, but that appears to not be quite correct. While no legislation 
even passed out of committee in either House or legislature, there was an act of legislation introduced in both houses of our legislature during the legislative session that just ended. Their lack of success to date, despite the relatively active effort, is reassuring, but I'm going to keep a close watch in future sessions and urge everyone I know to call our legislatures to stand firm against such legislation. So Hal, very specifically, uh, I appreciate you bringing this up. When I said an inactive campaign and when we built that map, it was strictly mirroring what the Convention of States Action Group considered active legislation from their perspective. That doesn't mean that there aren't other efforts underway, to your point. So there was legislation apparently in Maryland, according to Hal, and I'm sure that's correct, to try and put Convention of States on the docket. But it was apparently not part of the COSA action to do so. So then Hal also questions something else, and that is where this blue wall begins and ends and whether or not it's a blue wall at all. So he says, what's also interesting is at the same time moving through both the Massachusetts House and Senate are respectively H3658 and S2402. These bills are also seeking to call an Article 5 convention specifically to join Vermont, California, Illinois, New Jersey, and Rhode Island calling for an Article 5 convention to amend the Constitution to reform the campaign finance system. So that's what we were talking about before. So the blue states have had efforts on their own to call a convention. They are very much in the minority, though, of trying to call a convention because I think of the general fear that surrounds this topic that if a convention is called, that other items might be introduced. So when we put the episode together, it was about the very deliberate attempt, although we did allude to the fact that there was an attempt on the left to try and legislatively overrule Citizens United. We alluded to that, but that effort has nowhere near the organization or the groundswell that the rights attack for a balanced budget amendment has. So that's why we were specifically leaning into that. So I appreciate you calling that out, Hal. Again, I don't believe that calling a convention would be a productive thing for us at this juncture because we simply do not have the legislative numbers to be able to affect change in that manner. There's too many state houses that are controlled by Republicans because of gerrymandering, because of this assiduous attempt over the last couple of decades to take control of state legislatures. So there you go. And we had one from Desperate in Chicago, 99. What's so desperate in Chicago? So... Desperate in Chicago said, My nephew was raised as an Orthodox Jew, but for a while seemed like he was thinking independently and leaving the faith. Then he started listening to Ben Shapiro and it's been downhill ever since. What would be downhill about listening to Ben Shapiro? I can <laughs> clearly see that that would be an appropriate attack to take. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. I don't know who invited you here. Uh, but Desperate continues, Are there two to three books in the bookstore that you'd recommend that I sent to him to open his eyes to reality? Well, I picked out four. Wow. Instead of two to three. So much for following direction. Because I couldn't decide. I went back and forth. We have so many good books in Bookshop. And there's great introductory books to certain topics. Like, again, I, when we did our Economics of Racism episode, I, I think I mentioned that I don't think I could have attacked that episode without having Michelle Alexander's work so firmly in my grasp, having read The New Jim Crow a few times. So... In terms of race in the United States and mass incarceration, that would be like, I would always say that that's the book you have to read. You have to have that under your belt before you go on. In terms of, I guess, just generally, this is so hard to narrow down, but so Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean does a really good job of talking about the movement, especially the intersection between the Christian right 
and the neoliberal movement to come up with this sort of perverted, bizarre sense of white Christian national neoliberalism that we're living with today. I think that that's a really great book. Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson is as good as that. And it's an incredible narrative as well. It's very biting. It's very sharp. Everyone, I think, at this point knows that uh, I believe Jane Mayer's Dark Money is essential. It's foundational reading for anybody that's interested in the topics that we cover. And then I'll add The Color of Money by Mirsa Baradaran. That's the one that we really relied on for our Economics of Racism episode. Not to get too CRT on everybody, but I don't think you can talk about the modern history of American of the American economy without understanding what Baradaran covers in that book. So those four, to me, are absolutely essential. I just question whether or not anybody would take the time, if you're so far indoctrinated on the right, to be able to read those books. I think the names of the first three are probably innocuous enough <laughs> that you could slip it in there. Yeah. Color money might be too far for someone who's already on the right, because they'll be like, color? What does this mean? Yeah. But you might be able to get away with the, the first three, right? Maybe. Especially evil geniuses. Yeah, that sounds fun. I love evil geniuses. It's a bait and switch. Yeah. Why don't you switch the, print out like the Ben Shapiro biography dust jacket? (laughs) So moving on, Charlie L. has a really interesting approach. I applaud this. Well, I did it, Charlie L. says. I finally changed my official party affiliation from independent to Republican. Let me explain. The possibility a progressive candidate will get any kind of a chance here is a long way off. So Charlie's in Kansas. It feels like there's just no chance that progressives will ever take root there. So I've taken your advice and decided to try and make changes from the inside. I've decided the best way I can affect any change would be to start voting in the Republican primaries and trying to push these fucking Roger Marshalls out of the way and trying to center the crazies. Fuck these people. They want to gerrymander my congresswoman out. We can play back. I've got five converts so far, and that's just one day. So Charlie's talking about fucking up Republican primaries by voting for the more innocuous candidate, I guess, as far as the right-wing spectrum goes, and then voting Democrat in the general election. I applaud you, Charlie. I think that that's a wonderful strategy. So many unfuckers live in parts of this country because they they write in and they tell us about it where they just feel so alone. This is some crazy, crazy crazy-ass strategy that would certainly fuck with the pollsters. I love that. So well done. So now we heard from Unconnucker Taylor who commented on last week, someone had written in about Kendrick Lamar's new album. So Taylor said, I don't have a lot to say as a queer cis person, but I know a lot of people have been made uncomfortable about the continuous use of slurs and dead naming. So that's in reference to a specific song on the new album. And Taylor continues, These have been hurled at me personally and people I care about. And the story of coming to, quote, accept queer or trans and non-gender conforming people is old and overused. While I think the story is fine, the delivery made me and a lot of queer people very uncomfy. Thanks for reading this. If you made it this far, I appreciate and love you all. Makes me so happy that there are people out there who genuinely care and are trying to make a difference in this fucked up place we call Earth. Thank you for that, Taylor. I thought this was super interesting. I hadn't listened to the album. I, I looked up the song and the lyrics and everything about it. There's takes on both sides, people who thought it was told really well and people like Taylor who thought it was kind of unnecessary and excessive. It's not necessarily my place to have a take 
I am not a trans person. I'm not a queer person. So if we have any trans listeners or LGBTQ plus listeners who felt a certain type of way, I'd love to hear. It is just such an interesting topic of like, how do you deal with that from a of this person who's trying to tell their story, but does it sort of maybe in the wrong way? Or I don't know. It's just it's very interesting. So I'd love to hear from our listeners. Yeah, I don't want to relitigate our Chappelle episode, but this concept of uh, punching up or punching down is important. I like working through things through art. I think that's how a lot of things get worked through. I think Kendrick Lamar is an incredible artist, but I have no standing in this story, either as a fan or as, you know, obviously as, as a cisgendered white man in the world to be able to comment on it. I just, I think it's important to acknowledge art. I think it's important to acknowledge the response to art just as much as the art itself, and then to allow these things to kind of sit out there. So as 99 said, if you had feelings on it one way or the other, hit us up, let us know. Now, Bookstore Kim, who most people should know that we adore at this point, felt like she was a little too hard on us. So she sent an email last time that said, well, 99 and I were talking about getting the fuck out of here and moving to different countries. And she said, hey, fuckers, the poor and working class are stuck here. If this shit really comes to pass, it's us who will take the brunt of it. Not that I think you would really run. It is so good to be informed and so goddamn hard and tiring. So she's responding to her own email where she says, wow, I'm listening to show notes from the convention of state episode and I'm regretting my convention last email. You guys are getting hammered and I don't need to add to that. It was a difficult episode. My guess is it left a lot of us feeling hopeless. And so we lash out at you too. It's hard to be out here feeling hopeless and helpless. I can't say how grateful I am for the information and honesty of you two humans being human. Yeah, we are humans being human. And we actually didn't take your email or the other emails, quite frankly, in a negative light, because again, it's all part of the process. Even when people come at us, I'm probably just shooting myself in the foot right now. We don't really have a lot of trolls. That's not really a thing that we've engendered thus far. But even the people that are coming after us for and challenging us are doing it and they're backing it up. And they're they're saying either, hey, I grew up this way and I don't buy this. Or, you know, I have a couple of great examples. We didn't include them this week because actually they asked us to stop talking about it on show notes. Uh, so I'm going to talk about it. But where we had criticism about our take on Russia and Ukraine. And even that criticism where... These listeners were clearly agitated, even with my explanations of my explanations, sent in notes like, hey, we don't have to continue this through the show. I just love that you're responding to it. I get what you're saying. And I think you're really wrong on this. And it makes me mad because I love you guys. And they left it at that. They're not tuning out. They're not going elsewhere. They just fucking disagree. And that is okay. And I think we're a great example here at this show that you can genuinely disagree on certain things and still have mutual respect and feel like at least we're having an elevated discourse and I'm getting something out of it. So I'll be better prepared to either go deeper into my position, which is okay, or to just reevaluate it. So Bookstore Kim, especially somebody as dedicated as you, you can't kvetch at us. Now, there's nothing kvetching about it. Now, we're as a practical matter, we're not leaving the country today and even if we did hey pods right pods are fluid yeah i don't i don't have the money to move either kim there you go <laughs> so it was all it's all just a dream i have the money to move oh yeah oh i do are you gonna share it i would just have to um i just talked right into my of, water bottle so that, that'll be that good, good for echo? the podcast <laughs> 
Um, I have yes, I definitely have the money to move if I was to discharge all my debt. Oh, okay. Yeah. Leave your family behind, so you can physically move. No, oh, I can go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everybody else would be kind of screwed, but mm, that's their problem, right? They're I mean, almost adults. That's what I'm talking about. Individual frontier spirit of America. Just figure <laughs> it out. I'll give this one to you. This is your buddy Pethan from yeah. uh, Pittsburgh. So Pethan said, I must commend you for your defense of your comments on show notes this week, 99. People that get pissed off about that comment probably voted for DJT. Did I do it this time? I always say Tay. Remember? Because the J and the T DJ confuse Tay. me. Uh, DJT in 2016 and maybe 2020. Those people aren't at least a little culpable for the hate of our nation. I don't know what is. As always, I really do just need to thank you guys for your hard work. And it inspires me every single episode. Very nice. Thank you, Pethan. My best friend. Mm-hmm. One day we'll meet. Maybe in Pittsburgh. Eh. Come on. He's selling you on it's it at the so beginning of the email. Far. It's so far. It is far. It's like, why is it so far away? I did one trip, driving trip across the country. Nice. It was with my dad. He took the first leg. Okay. Which was from here to Pittsburgh. And it was, and I was, so I was reading, I'll never forget this. Here you go on fuckers. Here, here's a terrible little clue. I was reading The Fountainhead. Ooh. I know. So I was reading Ayn Rand. I was like, I got to check this out. See what the fuck this is all about. And I was dug into the fountainhead. And, you know, so when I read, I just, it's all I do. Like, I, I do it to the exclusion of everything else. I know people that can, like, you know, read and cook or do audiobooks or whatever. If I'm reading, I'm reading. And so we stopped at a rest stop and we were like fucking eight hours into this drive. And I looked up and I was like, oh my God. All right. It's my turn. We're, we're only in fucking Pittsburgh. How are we only in Pittsburgh? And we had so fucking far to go. Pittsburgh's far, man. Pittsburgh's uh, not Pennsylvania. That's my feeling. Yeah. It's like another another country. Yeah, you can you can shoot over to Philly in an afternoon. That's right. Pittsburgh is a trip. Yeah, you got to be going to Pittsburgh. Yeah. You don't just like happen into Pittsburgh. Mm-mm. Anyway. So Jason, I like this one. Jason sent, I like all the comments, but I like this one too. Said, uh, local government, because it's an accessible ground game where your listeners can do more than piss in the ocean to warm it up. That's Pito Tuyo. It's the worst acronym ever made up, and we realize now it was a stupid thing to do. It stands for pissing in the ocean to warm it up. It's time for Pito Tuyo. Okay, maybe not so easy in New York, but it's easy to get involved in smaller cities. In fact, they're desperate for more engagement from residents. Perhaps the episode could cover exactly what forms local governments can take, what responsibility authority they have, and just how someone would go about getting involved. If y'all are interested, I'm happy to ideate on what that could look like. So Jason's talking about like how difficult it is as one person to affect change. And we heard a great idea before about getting a handful of people to jump on board with you to switch parties and fuck up primaries. We have people getting involved, like the netties of the world that are really down there doing the hard work, you know, the real ground game. We have people that have sent in amazing suggestions all over the place. This is an interesting one because you really can quite easily get involved at the local level, like surprisingly so. There are community development organizations, business improvement districts, there are nonprofits that are like quasi-government agencies that will advise on policy. There are council seats. There are just positions within local political movements that if you and a number of like-minded people asked to get involved, you would be welcomed in and could affect change. It would take a little time, but you could really make some, some change. 
the school boards. I mean, there's so many different places to get involved. And we live in a culture where the loudest voices usually get the most attention. I think that's pretty true of every culture. But and and mind you, this is the exact strategy as they work downstream that the hard right has been taking, like we've talked about through Steve Bannon's podcast about getting involved at the precinct level. That's what this is. There are any number of jobs from poll watcher to committee person to fundraiser to envelope stuffer to being involved on a, on a local community agency that drives a lot more impactful policy for your community than any congressional involvement is ever going to have. And so if you are committed to living in an area and raising a family there or just living there or retiring there, whatever it is, chances are you could probably raise your hand and suddenly be tapped for a position and then just grow within that position and roll with it. But bring people with you if you're going to do it because you, you don't want to be alone. Anyway, I appreciate that suggestion. And now we go to Andrew, who is in his mid-30s, a white guy, straight identifying, married, father, doctor, currently enrolled in an MBA program. Jeez. I mean, how many more, right? How much more ambition does, does one person need, Andrew? Right? You're already a doctor. You already got a family. You're settling that. You need an MBA too? Actually, doctors usually are terrible business people. Terrible business people. This is a really good idea to get an MBA. Although it also strikes to the heart of you know one of the, the bigger issues that we have in medicine is that you know medical doctors are required to be business people instead of just medical doctors. But I digress. Anyway, Andrew said, living in one of the small red dots in Westchester County, Trump flags up and down my street after January 6th, his evolution has been slow. And I understand that sweeping change is going to have to be incremental and goes on to ask, how do we consolidate our majority such that we can use it effectively? Where is our large platform? Where are our warriors? We've touched on this a number of times that we amazingly have the numbers that the minority in this country is being edged out, but their messaging is coalesced and better, stronger, and more fearful. That's really the essential element of the messaging on the right. If you dissect everything that they're talking about, it's usually related to fear. So take the this overblown issue of transgender rights in this country. It's out of fear of otherness, out of some sort of challenge to some bizarre Christian norm. Take affirmative action. It's about giving a group something that was yours, just handing it to them where they didn't work for it. Take the border. Who are these people streaming across the border? I actually had a, we'll call it a discussion this weekend with a couple of parents, one of whom just decided to pop off and say, hey, did you know that there are immigrants that are actually coming from other parts of the world all the way down into South America, like fighting their way through jungles and they make it all the way up to the border. It takes them months and months to get here. You know, can you imagine? And we, he's like, you know, they get to the border. It's like, God, you know, get out of here, send them back. And I was like, you know, I got to be honest. Because again, I try to, even in my daily life and conversation, I try to meet people where they are. So I got to be honest. If that motherfucker worked that hard, that person beat their way through the jungle and defied like death numerous times and walked all the way to the fucking border. I want to lay out like a finish line ribbon, hand out a bottle of water to them and give them their papers and be like, fucking hey, you worked your ass off. Welcome to the United States of America, buddy. And it was so funny to watch his reaction to it because he was like, 
you know, you know what I mean, but you know, like, you know, go away. Don't come here. I'm like, don't come here. I want, I want that person like 10 out of 10 times. If they're going to work that fucking hard to get here. I mean, we always talk about how lazy and entitled Americans are. Wouldn't that light a fire under everybody's ass if that person came in? I say don't come here because it sucks here, right? but you're welcome to it. It's open borders for in my world, but also you're probably, you know, go somewhere nicer. Like we talked about, go to New Zealand. That's right. That's right. Or just stay in South America. Who's telling this man that people are going to the jungle? He watched some special on some people that like, so like fucking ancient le- aliens, like legitimately get dropped into the jungles in South America and they fucking work their way up. Here. Oh, so it's like a game show. <laughs> and so then he goes on to say, like, I can't even believe we make game shows about all these lazy Americans that can't live and exist on that uh, naked and afraid. And I was looking at it, I was like, well, you're kind of making my point right now, right? Like. That person, he's like, yeah, that person would be laughing at that. Like, oh, I just did this for uh, fucking six months and, and walked all the way up here, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That person's like made of steel yeah. compared to the people on that show, the right? People in, I mean, if you're, if you're taking it from like a survivor perspective, not that I'm a survivor apologist or anything, but like those people adapt. Fuck so, yeah, man. And they win. I'd be dead in a minute. It's also fucked up that we're having, we're doing this. I mean, in, the, in this world where this mythological person is going <laughs> through the jungle <laughs> That we do that for sport and then award prize money. This person is doing it. And then at the end, this fucking asshole is saying, go home. Right. Yeah. Hello. Irony. How fucking bizarre. But that's sort of the point here is that it's all based on fear. What are you afraid of when that person gets here? That they strap the fucking, you know, low yield nuclear weapon to their back? Like, what are we really afraid of? I hope he chops him with a machete. Well, Yeah, well, this guy, he might, he would. (laughs) So the evolution has been slow for Andrew, and Andrew's wondering how we consolidate our majority to use it effectively. I think we have to speak loudly and positively about the things that the other side is so fearful of. Uh, And the problem there is that MSNBC is not our outlet because they'll just try to fear monger on the right. So we can't have a productive discussion about balanced budgets or campaign finance reform or the economics of racism or go through any of the episodes that we've ever put together. We can't have it like a a really high level positive conversation that asks one question. What is it that we want to have happen here? What's the outcome that we're looking for? Because the right's never going to offer that outcome to you. They're not going to offer you what it is that we're striving toward. They're just going to dangle words like freedom and liberty and say things like don't tread on me and my rights and freedom. It's all fucking bullshit. There's no meaning behind any of those words or any of those feelings or sentiments, except that you have the right to exactly what you have right now and nothing more. And we're going to fight like hell to keep it. Bobby McDee, actually, another comment that he had made within his email was like this really, in his estimation from the outside looking in, comes back to something that we we've been harping on the last few episodes which is we just we just loathe the poor we have this feeling that we just we hate the poor but the people that are in control also don't want the poor to move up and move their station in life they would rather create fear of otherness instead of giving them an opportunity to actually have any sort of social or economic mobility 
So I think that that's one of the lessons here that we try to tease out is that you can actually meet people where they are and sort of change their stance or at least their framing and their approach to certain issues by being really positive about what the potential outcome of that issue is that they're so afraid of. So when you talk about immigration, don't just talk about freedom, liberty, right, wrong, what was written on the Statue of Liberty or what have you. Talk about the actual positive potential outcome that could come from having a really robust amnesty program. Anybody that is looking to better their lives, to come here to be in the workforce, to give them some sort of rudimentary training to be able to enter the workforce, to give them a proper glide path so that when their kids come to school, they're more easily able to adapt to the culture, the language, and the programming within our public school education. You can have really good positive conversations about that if you identify what the positive outcome is that you're looking to achieve. Anyway, so Rafe Raff wanted to weigh in. Now, remember, Rafe Raff is a great listener from Down Under, who's weighing in on the Buffalo shooting. Said the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand showed that it was committed by an Australian terrorist who quoted from that same replacement theory which seems like a good excuse to go kill people in another country. Now we have another white dude who's yet again killed black people in the U.S., referring to the same replacement theory bullshit and to the manifesto of the Christchurch shooter as well. Meanwhile, in Australia, we've taken stock, propped up an agency to address these issues, and then promptly shut it down. Fuck me dead. Fuck white supremacy. Fuck male toxicity. Fuck those two feeding on each other. Fuck the people in power who do fuck all and fit one of both of those groups, either by conviction or by complacency. This is an active problem. Racism kills people, and doing nothing makes us complicit. There is no neutral position on this. Just going to let that stand. Well done, Rafe Raff. So Whiskey Daisy emailed in, and this was a couple weeks ago. We were riffing on something, and Whiskey Daisy said... Nobody really burned their bras. The myth comes from a demonstration where women threw away symbols of oppression and one woman took off her bra and threw it into the bin. Plus, bras are expensive. Thank you for that. I also definitely wouldn't burn bras. Do you know how much bras cost? <laughs> you have daughters. Take a guess. <laughs> um, no. What's your What's your ballpark figure? Shit. I still think blue jeans are 10 bucks, so this is really hard. Um, I'm going to say that a quality bra okay. is 70 bucks. Yeah, that's that's right? about right. You okay. can get you can get cheaper ones. Yeah. They're fucking expensive. And yeah. you got to have multiple. And you got to have a sports bra. Right. And if you want to wear a strapless, you have a strapless or a convertible or you need a racer back. All this shit for us is so expensive. Even underwear. And you guys have fucking boxers. It's unfair. Tampons are expensive. Yeah. That I know. Fuck that. Um, and those things, you need them like, seems like monthly. It's crazy. Bras? <laughs> oh, the others. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Um, my friend who, they bought us, they said, I formerly bought you a coffee as fill up my cup. Thank you for the song, 99. So that's when I was singing Asher Roth, I Love College. Mm-hmm. So Philip My Cup sent a voice recording and said, this is indeed how we say it. Totally love your New York, but it's okay to head out west occasionally. So let's hear Philip My Cup's voice recording. Hi, guys. This is Phil writing from Washington State, right next to Oregon. 
and that's how we say it. Everybody out west, we say Oregon, we say Nevada, we say Willamette, we say there's a small town in Washington State near Seattle and near Tacoma. It's called Puyallup, P-U-Y-A-L-L-U-P. People mispronounce that one all the time. The usual reason why people mispronounce names around these parts is because they're uh, native names, but they're apparently more difficult to say than the Northeast native names, like Passamaquoddy and all that stuff. Uh, totally love your show. You guys are better together. When one of you was away, it just it lost a little or a lot. So stick together. And if one of you has to go somewhere, you know, maybe don't record until you're back together. It's It misses that much. It loses out that much. And Manny, you are literally the Manny. Well done. And we promise to never be apart again. So we had two comments on my Mandela effect question about we are the champions. Robert C. and Aaron N. both let me know that of the world, of the world is not in the album version of We Are the Champions, but it is in the live recording. No Mandela, they said. I remember, <laughs> and I, I during recording, I said, are you sure there's not another version? I was like, nope, that's but the I one. But I cut it out. Oh. That's what I get for letting you be right. Well, I would have stuck by my guns anyway, because that's like the recording. I know, but just saying, now oh. I'm not going to do that again. You don't have to. You never Thanks. have to do that. Okay. I fuck up enough. It's okay. You can let the people know that I'm fallible. Well, they already knew. I mean, like you said. <laughs> Obviously. Tyler said, I had an interesting idea for the pod that Yins might be into. I was thinking about how it would be fun to tune into a UNFTR live stream as the show notes have become just as interesting, thank you, as the weekly episodes. Are you up for expanding the breadth of your platform? It might be a fun direction to go where you can interact with the community in real time. No, we're not. Not yet. I would love to someday. But I can tell you, Tyler, that just the three of us pulling the oars as hard as we possibly can simply do not have the bandwidth. I alluded to the fact that we're going to try to add a couple more features. They are strictly audio features. I'm not all that interested in being uh, in having exposure on YouTube, even though in theory we're leaving a pretty good revenue stream on the table because I know that that's how a lot of other shows actually monetize. But yeah, someday I could see us well, you know, we're trying to figure out what happens next. Like, what? how do we do this in order? You know, I'm very much in favor of taking the show on the road at some point and, you know, being able to actually meet unfuckers in person. That's like a that's like a dream. I could see that coming before any sort of live stream, even though theoretically live streaming is a lot easier. I know that. But but the, he did have a suggestion about live streaming through the Spotify app of just the audio itself. That's a possibility. So we will look into that and we appreciate the suggestion and your faith in us that we would actually be able to expand our audience in all the different ways that we can do this. So thank you for the suggestion. And rounding out the emails and the forums is Stephen J, who says, your podcast is awesome. I'm a straight white American Jesus podcast listener and they recommended I listen to your podcast. Now I'm trying to go through and listen to every single one. The information so far is really informative. I'm happy to know who Milton Friedman is, so I can say, fuck Milton Friedman. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman. Stephen J., welcome to The Fold. Thanks to our friends Dan and Brad over at Swaj for sending you here, and we're looking forward to collaborating with them uh, later in the year. So good stuff. So now we're going over to Facebook. Jim M. was responding to our student debt episode and said, California, where I live, has a long tradition of affordable higher education. But other spending by the state is growing faster than education. In many states, healthcare spending consumes an even larger portion of the state budget. 
Jim, I think that's the case in Massachusetts as well, where they have pretty robust health care. Health care is, is an we've promised to unfuck that as well. And we'll definitely get there. Stu, it's like student debt to me was almost like a, like a proving ground and a primer to approaching healthcare. And one of the things that I've been rolling around as we gather our notes and our books and our information is exactly which lane we're going to explore with respect to healthcare, because there's, there's so, so much there. I know I've said it before, probably sounds like I'm just, you know, repeating myself ad nauseum here. But, you know, trying to get a toehold in this to do it the right way is is really important and really challenging. It'll probably, if I'm sort of reading my own tea leaves correctly, revolve around the blown, squandered opportunity with the ACA versus something bigger, better. You know, I've long held ideas on 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 that concept alone and kind of what could have been. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff where it's like that that's not all that useful to the debate today. And there's a lot that we already know that I don't want to just reinforce existing widely held beliefs about how Europe gets it done and we don't. Other industrialized nations are able to figure out healthcare, but we can't. The influence of the lobby from the medical industry itself and the pharmaceutical industry to kind of keep the norms and the status quo. In fact, in many cases, winding up in a better situation than they even did prior to the ACA. It's just so fucked. But we'll probably, you know, go with some very key measurable metrics like what we spend per person and outcomes and then try to have a really realistic discussion about kind of what has to happen next. It is a it continues to be a massive and looming problem, particularly as the baby boomers age and require more as end of life care becomes so horrifically expensive. And we are just unable to deal with the consequences of an aging population like this. So, I mean, not, not enough healthcare workers and providers or care providers. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. So really picking our lane, doing the right job and really effective job. Thankfully, unfuckers have sent in like a lot of information on this. It's almost too much. It's kind of breaking my brain at this point, but it is something that I'm working through. And I appreciate you putting that in there because education and healthcare, I think in this country kind of go hand in hand where the rest of the world looks at us and they're like, you're just doing it wrong. You're just backwards about it. And it just seems hard to convince people because we're so entrenched with the status quo. Now, the Anthropocene outbreak said, nationalize the whole broken fucking system. Band-Aids are, oh, I put in fucking. Nationalize the whole broken system. It's amazing how my brain just reads fuck now, right? Band-Aids are no use now. Tear them off quick and it hurts less. So Anthropocene outbreak is talking about the student debt and the, the system of taking on loans. I would love to, but again, I'm looking at the I guess the the real politic analysis of what is possible and what the thresholds are right now and making an assumption that there the the requisite courage is not there in the waning days of Biden's control over both houses and I'm putting air quotes around control he he, he never really had control and we know that and I do allow a little bit of grace to the Biden administration for that but I think it just it speaks volumes about the fact that Democrats are able to forcefully push an agenda even when they have something close to control. We just got an 11th hour email from an insane level member. Go for it. Okay. So this is from W. Jeremy D. Hey. 
They say, Max, I need to understand something. Why is it I can nod along with your essays, agree with your logic, sourcing and methods, and even support the exact same candidates you bring forward? Then in your next breath, you should on politicians, I think, can move us towards uh, move us toward those broad progressive goals. My hypothesis is you live with blue state privilege and I live with red state starvation. Mm. The difference an official like Amy Pete or even JB could make in my current home of Florida is astronomical when compared to our current state government. I can respect your point of view that they wouldn't make much difference where you live, but you could make a bit of space for those of us fighting to flip a district or a seat in the Senate with candidates that might just be an incremental change or even a backslide for you, but could make a huge difference for us. So maybe don't close the door behind you. Wow. Fucking A. Yeah, I just saw it. I thought it was definitely worthwhile to include. I'll go all the way back to where we started this thing with it, which is you unfuckers have made the show. I can I can sort of tee it up, but you knock it out every single time. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna sit with those words and I think they're really powerful and really important. So there you go. So moving toward the boarding school episode. Our good friend John Kane, by the way, reached out to us with some choice words for me once again about the boarding school episode. And this, of course, is the danger. He and I, again, went back and forth a little bit after the fact on text uh, as I was sort of clarifying what my position is. And I'll I'll reveal a little bit of that conversation. Anyway, his point initially was there's an irony that so many are looking to Deb Holland to right this wrong when she's hoisted up as the model of success. She's the model of success of forced assimilation and genocide. Her grandparents were in a long line of those held prisoner in these, quote, schools. Her mother was all in with military, and she becomes a congresswoman and cabinet secretary. She exemplifies what these schools were about. She's no longer the primitive savage. No, she is one of them. And now she'll be pretend to hold them accountable. This report is a sham. Carlisle alone was responsible for over 500 deaths, and the solution is language programs. So I want to allow for some full space for his incredulity here and 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 also agree that, and I think I was pretty clear that I, I, I also believe that the report, I didn't call it a sham. I think I called it the bare fucking minimum. And that's what I texted back to him. I'm like, I hear you, brother, but... Your audience, my audience, is very different. John does not have a huge audience, but his audience is almost entirely native. It's from all all throughout North America and extremely knowledge, next level knowledgeable and passionate about native issues themselves. And I feel like my job is somewhat of a bridge between somebody like John Kane, who's forgotten more about native issues than I'll ever know, and then the traditional corporate white media that ignores it altogether. And so how can I best serve the interests of the nation, but through an indigenous lens to show them that, hey, if we can't move, if we can't get ourselves to a place where we even acknowledge that this A happened, happened here, happened not just with the knowledge and the complicity, but the direct action and funding and programmed material from the U.S. government in conjunction with white Christian churches in this country to forcibly assimilate and Native children 
and also commit genocide, as we now know that it will likely be found that more than 10,000 of these children died while in the so-called care of these homes. And this report is not a panacea. I've been very critical of Deb Holland up until this point. And I do think that Deb is a creature of the system, and I'm not looking for enormous change. And I also understand John's point that like her getting a position within the white man's government isn't exactly an accomplishment or an achievement. What we need is true nation-to-nation relationships between native territories and the United States government. And all of that can be true while at the same time, the U.S. government, if it is going to ever be considered a partner in this, in the healing and the reconciliation on the way to actual reconciliation with reparations and a partnership from a government-to-government perspective that we have to begin by acknowledging what we fucking did. And then we have to do the bare minimum to allow for culture to be reappropriated by natives themselves, understanding that we have a place and we have a role in that because we can actually financially clear the way to do that. And I did call this this legislation the bare fucking minimum. But I understand also, and I wanted to give space to where John is coming from, because once you start to understand the Native perspective that, oh, one of their own is in office in a position of authority, that's like saying to black people in this country, you're okay now because Barack Obama was president. So it's really important to understand this perspective. It really is. So thank you, John, for, for weighing in on that. And uh, stop yelling at me, man. Now, speaking of yelling at me, Nanny McGee was yelling at me. <laughs> said, I need to once again correct your interpretation of what I posted, Max. Wisconsin United to amend has no connection to organizing to push for convention of states. In fact, it is the last thing they want. In Wisconsin, the only way to get a statewide vote on anything is to convince our legislature that we have a consensus of citizens wanting it to be so. Well, that is the spirit of the law anyway. I'm surprised that your curious mind didn't actually push you to at least do a search on the group I mentioned. Had you done so, you'd have found that the amendment we wanted added to the Constitution is an answer to the SCOTUS decision of Buckley versus Vallejo and Citizens United. So, did I conflate the two? Yes. Do I apologize? Yes. Mostly because I'm terrified of Nettie. But also... Because I, I didn't have the time to explore that particular group. We actually had a lot of groups around the country that we could have delved into. So I apologize for mischaracterizing your advocacy specifically through that group. And I totally understand where you're coming from. So thank you for clearing that up, Nettie. And I love you and I hope you still love me. Now let's get back to student debt episode by going over to the Twitters where we can start 99 with Will Watkins the fourth. I am William Wallace. Will said, phenomenal episode. If you have student loans, know someone with student loans, love someone with student loans, are about to incur student loans, you need to listen to this. Max, this is what I meant by lighthearted. Oh, yay. (laughs) I was like, is it? Okay. (laughs) It definitely wasn't lighthearted for me. (laughs) It was definitely uh, poignant. It was less, I guess it was less gloomy, but not light. I felt it was less, and I said it at the end of the episode, I actually felt more emboldened and encouraged once I understood, and I didn't say it before, but the piece that excited me about student loans. Was it the part where you decreed that you would pay mine back out of your own pocket? Was the part where I decreed that I would pay it, she's doing a, a Jedi mind trick on me right now, was 
the fact that not once, but twice in its short history, the government almost put Sally Mae out of business. So this isn't unusual. This isn't unique. They know how fucked up Sally Mae is and that Sally Mae needs to fucking go and fuck their investors and their shareholders for preying on the system in order to you know, promote their returns and then hiring lobbyists to, to make things even more fucked for people like dis, you know, not being able to discharge your student debt and bankruptcy. Like, There's so much wrong with that corporation. But the fact that we've actually had a couple of administrations that recognized it and, and almost put them out of business is what gave me hope because there's actually a legislative avenue to fix this fucking problem. So if you combine really good, thoughtful legislation along with some executive boldness to be able to kind of right the past wrongs but then fix it going forward, I was hopeful because the way out of this was was actually a lot more apparent than I thought it was going to be when we got involved. Now, I do not think that's going to be the case for healthcare. <laughs> Speaking of healthcare, uh, but I did wind up uh, you know, being a little more optimistic than usual. It was a nice change of pace. Yeah. Sure for your mental health as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Knudsen said, this one will hit me where I am. As one of many Americans with college debt but no degree, I'm an example of what a life becomes when in this position. If y'all didn't know, I'm a third shift custodian at the very college I incurred the degreeless debt. It is so poignant. That is so powerful. Do you think it's like when in movies when they don't have money for dinner and they have to wash dishes? Feels like it. And then he never left. What's so really cool and powerful about this is that Wild Eye Bob is obviously, you know, Knudsen has been commenting since the very beginning. It's been one of our really our bigger net promoters. I think he didn't he uh, help found the Facebook group, too. I believe so. I think it was all him. It was all him, right? Yeah. You talk about one of our biggest net promoters, not just somebody who comments on stuff, but we got to see a little bit more into the Knutson mindset when he emailed us about the politicians in Wisconsin mm. and the people that he's backed before and how he was thinking about the elections and the progressive movement there. And it was so like deep and thoughtful and well-reasoned. He's not just somebody hanging on Facebook and telling people, hey, come on over, listen to this great thing. Wild Eyed Bob is, is a smart motherfucker. And the fact that he would even come out there and say, hey, this is what this looks like. This is what managing college debt, even when you don't get the degree, really looks like, I think is really is really brave and bold. If you work at the fucking school that you owe money to, I mean, I know that it's probably not to the school. Like, he's not overdue on his bills to the school, but there should be some sort of fucking thing. It just, I mean, it, it's, it illustrates maybe more than any other comment that we've gotten the ridiculousness of this entire situation. Thank yeah. you, Bob, for sending that in. So Redact Ted <laughs> said, listening to how the presence of loan money causes tuition to increase reminds me of how the presence of insurance makes healthcare costs go up. Preach, Redact Ted. Hmm. Preach. And then Knoxman 2010 said, why did they charge interest rates or need to make a profit on student loans? You have already said the answer. They run the government like a business, which the government is not one. Welcome to capitalism. I want to know, Knoxman 2010, what was so important in 2010 that it made it in your handle? That's first. Second, one of the most villainous statements, I think, that to ever come up on the right 
is this notion that we should run government like a business and how that has been applauded since the Reagan era. You have just spoken a very quiet but powerful truth. The government is not a business. And if we continue to look at it as one, then we will always wind up in the scenario that we find ourselves today. Very well done and much more succinctly stated than I could ever do. Mm-hmm. So Walt Haim said... Any thoughts on how student loan asset-backed securities are used as collateral for highly leveraged margin trading? Any student loan forgiveness could theoretically unwind a substantially larger amount of capital from the economy, similar to subprime mortgages collapsing in 08. Yeah, so the two different things here. The subprime collapse in 08, yes, was worsened by the fact that it was also part of the derivatives market. But the subprime prime collapse was more about the underlying asset losing such enormous value in a short period of time and then contributing to the clusterfuck thereafter. If you get rid of, uh, presumably, so the, the securitized student loan debt, first of all, is much smaller in, sc- in scope and scale than the mortgages that were securitized and sold and repackaged and sold again and repackaged. It will be smaller in scale than that. It wasn't the fallout from the securitized loans that made the country go so deep into a recession. Did that fuck up the investment banks? Hell yes. Did that fuck up the banking sector that did not have that firewall between commercial lending and investment lending and create a liquidity crisis as a result of their gambles in the debt market? Abso-fucking-lutely. The volume of indebtedness and securitization on the student loans does not have the same depth and breadth into the economy as the mortgage-backed crisis did. And it wouldn't behave the same because the students are the underlying asset here, not the homes. So people's wealth is not tied up into the very thing that is actually going to crater. And it's funny because... When you study the derivatives market and you look at securitization writ large, you're talking about a pool of gambling debts surrounding an asset. Inherent in that is that for every stake, there's a claim on the other side. And so you've got people that are betting bigger and bigger pools that all kind of theoretically evens out. But the one who gets left holding the bag when a bet fails and that, let's say, you didn't short the position and it fails, it goes all the way down, and you have so much liquidity out there on that original bet, the whole thing can come cratering down on your piece of the investment. But remember, there's going to be people on the other side who actually perform well. So when you actually eliminate something like this, you just take it out of the system. First of all, a lot of these are short-term contracts. So in theory, you will have time to work through a lot of these debts. Will banks take losses? Absolutely, but the people aren't going to lose their underlying asset. You see what I'm saying? Like the value of that thing that they're betting on doesn't lose any intrinsic value because the value of the student loan is the person that's sitting there. Nothing happens to that person except that person actually winds up in a better position. Whereas in a home market, the value of that home loses all of its value. That person loses the ability to actually pay for that. They lose the home. It's gone. It's a wash. And so that person now becomes a net negative in the economy where 
is ironically in this scenario, that person, that same person that has this debt that's totally expunged becomes a net positive in society because theoretically, obviously, they have less indebtedness. They can actually change their indebtedness to go for things that like Elizabeth Warren was saying that have a better long term value. But also they have more disposable and discretionary income by not having to pay off the student loans. And so that's the big difference there. But it is an outstanding question. Thank you for that, Walt. Just spewed off a lot of off the top of your head. Sometimes it's fun to watch. Well, it's always fun to watch, but well, thank you. sometimes you surprise me. Oh, thanks. Or you can just go back and watch The Big Short. Mm. Such a good movie. And book. And book. The book and was book. first. The book, you know, I didn't, read the, I didn't read the book. <gasps> I just watched the movie. Wow. But I do. Now I don't trust anything. Are you just reading or watching the movies of all of the books in our bookshop? So I like <laughs> Michael Lewis as a storyteller. But he's not going to be my go-to as a historian. Mm. Is that heresy? I think he's a really great storyteller. What is history if not just story? <laughs> it's her story. Yeah, the yes, way it should queen. be written. Yes, queen. Although I do know one of the characters in the book, like Earl, IRL. Can't say. You can't say if you know them IRL. What is IRL in, in real, real life? life? Yeah. In real yeah, life. So, so, so. Sorry, Earl. Earl. Earl, IRL. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Do you know Earl? My God. <laughs> I am. I, I'm basically a boomer at this point. I mean, I did I did say afterwards, IRL. So I don't know Earl, but I do know a character in the book, IRL. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Do I know them? No. Have I heard of them? Yeah. Interesting. Maybe. We'll talk later. Okay. We're like... We're like celebrities who like no gossip and we're like, I'll tell you off mic, <laughs> even though this is probably the most boring person. It's not interesting. All right. Well, Cameron Rosso, closing out our student debt tweets, said, thanks, Max and 99. Every episode is superb. And I take you with me on my Saturday morning runs. Love being a part of the UNFTR tribe. Love having you part of our tribe. And I love that we're on a run with you. Yeah, you're doing what I'm not. What? Yeah, me too. What happens when we really go on? Like, can like when it's not one of the 45 minute episodes, but it's like a buck 15. Like, do you just feel like you have to keep running the entire time? Mm. I don't want to give you a heart attack. Maybe we're helping them train for a marathon. Maybe. Yeah. I don't think I've run for an hour cumulatively. Never. <laughs> in the last uh, five years. It's terrible. I mean, running's stupid. I hate it. Uh. All right. So we have some general tweets now, right? We have starts off with Saint. Been hearing people trying to claim that money is speech lately. Any thoughts on that? Because the idea of equating the movement of money to free speech frightens me. Yep, it's called Citizens United, and it is fucking terrifying. And at some point, we will unfuck Citizens United, but I want there to be... I think it's widely enough known now, actually, how horrific that was, and, and at the laws that actually led up to it as well. Citizens United was sort of like the culmination of some pretty bad law. But yeah, at, at some point... Assuming that there's going to be an attempt to fix a little bit of it at some point, then maybe we'll jump into that. Obese Andy sent in the Chomsky interview that uh, he was referencing, calling it the tortured interview. He said, if you honestly find it cogent and consistent, I apologize. I genuinely thought his family had asked for people to leave him alone. That might be mere rumor. I apologize doubly. Obese Andy was among a handful of people that had kind of questioned where Chomsky is at this moment in time and whether or not he is just completely getting the Russia and Ukraine situation wrong. So I have yet to watch the interview. It is an hour long and I will watch it and have an answer next week. 
Tommy Lee Myers said TLDR. TLDR. Send it out, honey. Tulder. Tulder to why? TLDR. To love Democrats and Republicans is why I supported this. No, what is it? Do you really not know? Truth letters dip wrongly. Right? No, that's it wouldn't be an R. That's with the W. No, I don't know what I mean. Too long didn't read. Too long didn't read. It means why wouldn't they? People give you a TLDR. Like if you tell a long story, oh my then God. you provide a TLDR at the end. So someone skims it and they say like, "Oh, TLDR, my boss was a dick, so I shit in his car." Unfuckers! This is really how like this is like one of those big blind spots. I have a huge blind spot when it comes to huge. these little huge acronyms. Mm. I really do. Like, I don't know what any of them stand for, except for LOL. Lots of love. Yeah. Living out loud. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what it is? Mm-hmm. TLDR to why I supported the COS. As <laughs> I used to be a libertarian, like ANCAP, Austrian school libertarian. Having kids and removing myself from politics for a few years helped me reevaluate. I advocate for the veil of ignorance thought experiment to anyone I can. The veil of ignorance thought experiment. Tommy Lee Meyer, I like that. Ah. <sighs> But we don't want people to dip out. It's so funny well, though you when, can you, dip when out you on that side. When you get when <laughs> you you clear head, you're clear head. It, it's like you know, ninety nine. How I always talk about like the the indoctrination of cults and indoctrination requires consistency. And I do think, and we've talked about it before as well. Like I, I even had a moment over the weekend with ninety nine where I was like, you know, do you need to dip for a little bit? Because I'm I always try to be cognizant of like how people are affected by information. I've spoken about it before on the show when I was putting together a project years and years ago, I didn't understand it in myself until I got through it, that it made me depressed. I didn't recognize it as I was doing it. I didn't recognize it even on the way out. I just know that once once it finished, I sensed something in myself, it changed. And you know, a lot of people would be, oh, take the blue pill or the red pill. Like, but there is a little bit of, there is a little bit of that 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 is true and it can change your psychology which can then change your physiology a lot of this can make you physically emotionally and mentally ill from just taking too much of it in i think about it all the time when i'm putting this thing together and for me the danger zone is actually is typically thursday night thursday night for me is when everything has kind of been put to bed I've done as much as I can possibly do for an episode and I have a come down and it's, it could be hard and it could leave me in a place where I'm only just like, if like, if my family isn't around and it's a Thursday night and I'm left to come down, like only in my head, it gets really dark very quickly. And the only way that I can figure out how to dig out of it is to dig into something brand new. So I get this whole veil of ignorance thought experiment. It's not something that I've chosen to to abide by, by just by virtue of doing this show. But I also understand how important it is to sometimes hit the pause button and be like, yeah, I'm going to raise my family right now and uh, tell the world to go fuck itself and just focus on what's real. Because the further away you get from some of these things, the more ridiculous they fucking seem. It's crazy. And the more maddening it becomes because you're like, well, just fucking fix it. But in that moment as well, the problem I have with the veil of ignorance in this day and age is that Every second you plug back in to society, you're getting a really bad answer to a current problem that is 
ahistorical and non-contextual. What I mean by that is the minute you start partaking of headlines again, the minute you just curse, do a cursory glance, you're going to not get a headline. You're going to get clickbait. You're not really going to get hard news. You're going to get a synopsis of the news through the lens of somebody's idealistic and ideological commentary. And so it's, it's a little dangerous to dip out, but at the same time, it's really important to dip out. Just be very measured about where and when and how you choose to re-engage with this shit when you do come back in. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Sometimes for me, it's like I have to put down a specific thing. I'm like, I'm not going to stop caring about it, obviously, but I have to stop doing such a deep dive for the moment mm-hmm. because it's very hopeless. So I don't have my own like personal Twitter because social media is bad for my personal health, but I have Twitter for work and I found myself just like constantly doom scrolling on it, mm. especially on the UNFTR Twitter. <laughs> a lot of It's a lot of bad shit over there. Mm. You know, obviously I love hearing from our own fuckers, but reading what's trending for you and the whatever timeline. And I was like, this is fucking bad. So I deleted off my phone and I was like, I'll in- engage with our own fuckers, you know, at work at, on my desktop, but I can't just sit and doom scroll because that's what I was doing. And I was getting so fucking depressed about just everything I saw. So, you know, maybe dip out in that way where mm-hmm. you still get your news from other places. So let's have a let's have a painful discussion right now. Knowing this that you on can- mic. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the nature of the box that I've locked you in here where this is actually part of the thing that we do. We do it gleefully and we do it joyfully and we love it and we love spending time together and all of that stuff also happens to have like a a dark side to it. Like, how do you resource away from our show when it's now what we are to take care of yourself? Has this added to your consternation? I feel like you're entrapping me. (laughs) I'm not. Genuinely, genuinely curious about it because I do different things. Are you asking? But I'm older than you and I've been through it. Which question am I answering? Am I answering what do I do? How do you resource? What do you mean by that? Like, what are my coping mechanisms? Yes. I don't have any. They're bad. <laughs> uh, I'm bad at it. Talk about it with my therapist all the time. Therapist is one. Well, yes, of course. I'm okay. I'm big into my my therapist. Uh, I love her. We're best friends. Not really. That'd be inappropriate, but I do love her. So, yeah, I go to therapy. Uh, we don't, we, I mean, we talk about the world, mostly about COVID because I can't deal with it anymore. In an, in a sad way, not in like a I'm an anti-masker way. Um, I do I, I go to therapy. Um, I you took Twitter off your phone. Yeah, sure. I did that last night. I mean, I can't claim that as like a. I mean, I don't have my own personal like I don't have I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. Um, I have work. Instagram is a long-standing. If you want to call it a coping mechanism, sure. I have to I have to not engage in that because even reddit sometimes i have reddit which i don't really consider social media but it is i have to like take breaks from it i have to leave specific subreddits sometimes if they're like even the made me smile subreddit i think i've told you it's like always people who are like i'm not sick anymore and i'm like you made me (laughs) sad because you were sick and i'm like that's i'm I'm happy for you but now i'm i'm more sad so things like that um so does the show add to it I mean, 
I had to boil it down, I guess so, but I wouldn't trade the knowledge I've gained for that because now I feel like I know more about what's going on, I know why it's happening, and I can understand it better. So, but also we're all we're living in like a really fucked up time. I mean, it's it's been fucked up, but you know, it's hard to say like is it more fucked up? I grew up, you know, I was alive during 9-11. Like, was, is this time worse than then? Or am, am, I, am I more cognizant? Or is it genuinely worse? I can't really say. But it's fucked up. So even if the show wasn't here, just by the nature of who I am, which is what I told you, like, I'd still be paying attention to what's going on in the world. But yeah, sometimes it is, I don't know. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. If there are other ways that unfuckers resource or, or you know, what other coping mechanisms that you have. One of the things that I dislike the most about how the right has characterized mental health in this country is that they, they really shit on it. And, you know, like the we were joking about Ben Shapiro's, you know, cup, you know, liberal tears. They love putting B-roll up on their newscasts of liberals crying at protests. And and it drives me crazy that that there's no space or that it, it, it's it's characterized still as weakness if you if you cry or if the, or if you care or if you're so passionate about something that you would you know burst into tears at a public meeting because this, these things are so important to you like the people who speak with tears in their eyes as opposed to venom in their hearts are the ones that I look at and I'm like that's okay that you know you're allowed to work through that and have those feelings because you do care but it's it's seen as a sign of weakness and and i and i hate that so if there are so i think we should save space for each other and do that in a really in in a way that lets you know that that's okay like it's just okay to do that take your space take your time and if you have ways that you per, that it personally works for you that you find a coping mechanism um share it with us and we'll put it out there and you know I don't know, maybe it's the fucking com app or maybe it's just, you know, going for a walk or whatever, whatever that or playing with a dog or going to a pet shelter. Like, what are those things that work for you? Because no, that makes me too sad. I can't go to an animal shelter. No, I'm going to want to adopt all the animals. Oh, it makes makes my kids so happy. They love because we also have an animal, too. But I know, but I love to go play with them. Like, that's people's jobs. Like, they'll just go fucking play with animals, you know? I know. I, At a yeah. no-kill shelter, mind you. Well, of course. Yes. No, I, yeah, I can't. It's too sad. It, it's too, And it's also very overstimulating for me because they're all barking at the same time. That's and fair. I want to take all of them home. That's I want to take the sad old well, one home. Why don't you? Why don't you? Because I can't. You have a, you're a cold-hearted bitch. Look I at am. you. Man. Killing old white people and leaving dogs in pounds. Unbelievable. I would 99. take every cute little pit bull if I could. I just, I wanna, wanna have thirty pit bulls. I know you love pit bulls. They're so cute. They're and people are mean to them. Now moving on, so we can close this out. Oquangulated. Oquangulated. Oquangulated said book recommendation: Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future by Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann. Uh, so we'll make sure to get that up into the listener recommendations in the UNFTR bookshop. And Midwest Monster said, 30 years of corrupt individualistic GOP politicians have run to the heartland into the ditch. We don't even have legitimate elections anymore if we ever did. What the fuck can we do to help Ohioans? I'm not basketing you together, Midwest Monster. Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, the so-called 
you know, electoral rust belt there is uh, is just it's a fascinating part of this country. These these amazing swing states that seem to go from, you know, incredible progressivism to just really like horrific, horrific right wing sentiment. Maybe one day I'm going to put this in my notes. Maybe one day we'll we'll tell the story of America through one of these states. Hmm. That'd be interesting. I think Ohio has the most presidents, if I'm not mistaken. Weird. Probably easily look that up right now, but I think that's the case. Deep Pow Seven on Instagram said, "Y'all fucking crushed this episode. So good. Had a feeling the big banks in Wall Street were doing quite well with the status quo. I particularly liked amplifying the view that higher education should be viewed as an investment in our country. Well done." And then we got a lot of applause and the hundreds and hearts and we appreciate that deep bow seven, especially on the Instagram love where I don't think we get a whole lot of it, right? No, it's not true. No? Yeah. I don't see it. No. Okay. You always say that about social, but then I'm like, uh, don't disparage. Don't I'm disparage not... my mental taxing hours I spend on our platforms with our unfuckers. We unpack a lot less Instagram than the other well, yeah, it's just not the massive trove not of the, social the that you've been able to cultivate, right? Like, why would anybody? I guess we for me, like, it's like, why would anybody comment on Instagram about a political thing? To me, that's weird. Like, I, and that's just my own mental hang-up about like the purpose of social platforms. No, people comment. I have conversations with people in the inbox. Hmm. They send me memes. They do. Yeah, I got a lot. Of, I got meme friends. People oh. tag us in their stories. Is that is that uh, Asoke's uh, preferred medium? No, Asoke's Twitter. She's Twitter. Yeah. Okay. All right. Damn. We have some cross-platform people. I know where everyone goes. That's neat. Uh, well, Substack is another place where mm. people will fuck with us. And uh, we had one from Debbie L. Said, blown away. A new favorite episode. One of your best. And that's a high bar. Even your show notes kill me. Hilarious, endearing. It's too much. Stop it. Thank you, Debbie L., for weighing in. And Denise said, Dearest Max, some of us boomers follow and agree with you, so hopefully we're not all lumped together. I had a little bit of regret putting together the subhead for that show. Hey, boomer, shut the fuck up. I was very agitated with Janine Pirro and then other clips that actually wound up on the cutting room floor. It just seemed that every single take on the right was some fucking, you know, just limp boomer just being like eh, I worked so hard to get where am I at it's like also college yeah. was five dollars then college was five dollars houses were 50 grand then go fuck yourself right school. yeah it's it. just so no I, I I apologize for lumping all the boomers together and uh, I you know people don't unpack or unfuck my generation Gen X a whole bunch uh, we're sort yeah. of like this squeeze generation there's a plenty of people in my generation that I know personally that are like, yeah, fuck those kids and their student debt because they also feel, you know, put upon and they, that they've had to, you know, work themselves through this thing and what have you. And so, um, yeah, there's a whole bunch, there's a whole swath of the country that can go uh, fuck itself, not just the boomers. Does that make anybody feel better? <laughs> <laughs> and also on Substack regarding Convention of States, the Iowa Badger said, red zone here, according to the map. And this Iowa Badger is seething, hissing, and pissing mad. So Iowa Badger gave us some detail on the fuckery that's going on in Iowa, and uh, it's not great. I appreciate you reaching out. I would also encourage everybody to go read it because it's just another way for us to drive you all to Substack 
and not because we're uh, being greedy animals about it. It's because Substack is always going to be free, and it's yet another place that we can convene. And just rounding out, we had coffee donations. ER is now a member. Says, my absolute favorite podcast. Thank you for the work you do. Well, you are welcome, and thank you for the membership. Someone is now a member. Said, thank you for opening my eyes and ears to what is happening. Well, you're welcome. And again, no, no. Thank you. And Nathan Sirs bought us a coffee. There are so many things I love about your podcast. Well, I think the most of this is the respect that you have for your listeners, even when you disagree or are aggrieved by them uh, or aggravated by them. Sorry. And and again, there you go. That's the point I was making earlier. I love that we can have this type of elevated discussion, walking away, disagreeing with one another after a pitched battle and still be in love. Thank you, Nathan Sirst. And Maria from Puerto Rico, who I admonished last week, saying you don't have to buy something every time you make a comment. And she said, Dear Max, I'll happily buy you all coffee for what you do. And I know I don't have to pay to make a comment, but hey, why not? And I like the message she gave me. Dear 99, don't apologize. Don't. You rock. And notice I am speaking straight to you. I empathize. I once had a male boss speak for me, rejecting someone who would make me a job offer. I only heard about it much later after I was hired from the female new boss who thought that it wasn't right that my now former boss, former male boss, opined to her that I wouldn't be able to do the job because I had two small children at the time. She recruited me anyway, mostly out of spite for him. LOL. Now, Maria from Puerto Rico, let me tell you what 99 feels about Mm -hmm. this email. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) What? No, I, I didn't have anything. I didn't have any feedback. Just I liked it. And... Women supporting women. Girl boss. Girl boss. Just kidding on that one because that's cringy. But yeah, we don't do girl boss anymore. Oh, oh shit. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Let me because why do I have to be a girl boss? Scratch that out of my notebook. You know. And finally, Bookstore Kim bought us three coffees. Thank you, Bookstore Kim. And uh, we had a review. 99. What do we got? Ant Proof Case said, makes you think, laugh, and engage without becoming suicidal or homicidal. With U.S. politics and greed being what they are, that is no small accomplishment. Thank you, Antproof Case, and thank you to all of the unfuckers, subfuckers, down under fuckers, unkanuckers, euro fuckers, kiwi fuckers, swash fuckers, pitch fuckers, pack fuckers, bottle fuckers, and the like for helping us really just, boy, grow this show. And it is growing, by the way. There's a lot of feedback. It is a reflection of the numbers and the downloads and the influence. And it's something that we are being very measured about. We're taking our time. We're taking it all in stride to make sure that we maintain a high level of care into into every single thing that we do. We just can't thank you enough for supporting us. This coming week, got a couple things coming out. Um, can't say surprise. Can't say too much about it just yet because uh, right now they're just sort of knocking around uh, in my head, but. I'll probably have to punt on the one that I really wanted to get out this week. So you may have a quickie instead this weekend because I'm, I'm deep into the weeds on building something out. It's probably going to take me another week. But I think that we have a topical cream coming up, uh, just something that's I've been ruminating on for a little bit. So we'll see. Uh, we'll catch you when we catch you on fuckers. Thanks again for all you do and all the support that you give us in 99. I thank you and Manny, wherever you are. I thank you for helping us put this together and we'll catch you next time.